Well, a very good morning to you. Uh, as Malcolm just mentioned, my name's Rich. We're going to be carrying on in our series. So we've been looking um, at the life of David, um, and we've been doing a series um, called Worship and War, um, looking at these two features um, that, if you like, mark David's life. Um, he was a man of worship. Um, he wrote um, around half the Psalms that we find, the Book of Songs. Um, it's about halfway through um, your Bible um, in the Old Testament. Um, he's a man of war. Um, we see throughout David's life, um, he's basically raised up um, as quite a military um, victor. Um, he defeats army after army after army. The well-known story, David um, and Goliath, where he defeats Goliath, the, ch- the champion of the Philistines. Um, and f- really, we see David kind of propelled into military victory. Um, and, and, and that kind of marks his life as well. So much so that actually David, um, when he's eventually established king, he says, I want to build a house. I want to build a temple um, for the Lord that we can worship. Um, in Jerusalem, and, he, and, and the Lord says, no, there's blood on your hands, you're a man of war, um, and he says to your son Solomon, who's going to build the temple, um, and so these two things, worship and war, um, really mark uh, David's life out, and, and we're kind of looking at the life of David and pairing um, the events and circumstances in David's life with the Psalms that he wrote, um, to give us an insight into what was going on um, in his own heart, um, his attitude of worship um, in the midst of quite a lot of uh, kind of some pretty crazy circumstances, really. Um, he's, he he, he, he f- has fleed King Saul, who was um, appointed king over the Israelites. Um, he's fleeing King Saul um, because David has been anointed king. And so basically David, as a young boy, was anointed king of Israel. Um, and, da- and Saul, this, this, this giant of a man who was head and shoulders above all Israel, um, basically catches wind of this um, and wants to basically crush him and kill him. Um, and so David, from a very young age, is kind of, uh, a kind, kind of uh, on the run. He initially is taken into Saul's house, and then Saul tries to kill him a couple of times, and he's on the run. Um, and and, and it, it's just a bit of a crazy scene, really. And we've been looking at this series. You can um, download all the sermons um, if, you, if you want to get a fuller picture um, of everything that happened in his life. But one key thing that I want to pick up on, um, just before we get into our text today, is... When David ran away from Saul, because Saul tried to kill him, he tried to throw a spear um, and pin him against a wall, um, and David flees. Um, and when David flees, he, 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 he finds himself in um, 1 Samuel uh, 22, he finds himself in the cave of Adullam. Um, within uh, the cave of Adullam, um, what we see is David hiding out. Um, but we also see people gathering to David. Um, it says in uh, 1 Samuel 22, um, and, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So basically David gathers this ragtag bunch of people um, and they, they're, they're all kind of under oppression or they're in trouble um, in their own circumstances and they find their way to David um, in the cave of Adullam. Um, and uh, it says... And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Um, And so he's got 400 men hiding out in caves. Um, And two of these people that we're going to look at um, in our story today, um, two of these people are with him in the cave. Um, We've got a guy called Joab, 
Um, so David, fast forward um, several chapters, Saul's now dead. Um, uh, David is appointed king um, over Israel. He's reigning. He's on the throne. Um, and Joab is one of these guys in the caves with him. Joab is appointed commander of the army. So Joab, if you like, is his military general. Um, David is a man of war, um, and Joab is his military uh, commander, if you like. Um, and then another guy, Uriah. Um, Uriah uh, is another chap that's with him in the caves. Um, and it's said of these guys that they are David's mighty men. Um, it's kind of like if you think about what the, the, the people would be fearful whenever they said David's army is coming because there were these 400, well, 400. In 1 Chronicles, it talks about 30 in particular that were kind of real military, just powerhouses. And you would be filled with trepidation and fear if these guys came anywhere near you because there was just, there was just something on them um, that was powerful um, that meant they had military victory after victory after victory after victory. Basically, if they said they were coming to take your city, you might as well have just given up. Because what we read is a pattern of David's life. As, he leads up to, as, as he's appointed king of the throne, he then basically just has military victory over victory over victory. It's quite um, incredible. Um, and, and, and these two guys, Joab and Uriah, um, are two of his mighty men um, that were right there with him um, in the cave of Adullam. And uh, we're going to jump in um, to 2 Samuel today. Um, I've changed the title slightly um, so uh, the, it was originally entitled The Big Sin. Um, so if you um, know anything of the story of David, you will know that uh, he fell into gross sin um, with Bathsheba. We'll read the story in just a second. Um, but I've changed the title from The Great Sin to Returning to the Foundation. I think particularly off the back of that word that Dave just brought just before the break, um, rather than focusing on David's sin... I want us to think, actually, what were the things that then led him from that to returning to the foundation to stand firm on the Lord? That just as Dave brought that word, maybe you have felt yourself kind of step off of that foundation um, and, and move into something else and you're just not peaceful. Um, perhaps God's brought conviction um, or you're just aware of something in your own life where you've just kind of taken a sidestep and you're no longer standing on the foundation and we're going to see that today in David's life. And I believe it's God's heart that we would return to the foundation. That we would return to standing firm in the truth of who God is. What he's accomplished for us. And that like David we might come with um, humble and repentant hearts. So we're going to um, jump in. Uh, we are going to read quite a few verses um, we're going to read from 1 Samuel 11, uh, verses 1 to 17. It will come up behind me. Um, if you've got a Bible, then we're in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel I apologize. 2 Samuel 11, um, verses 1 to 17. So in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, when he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, of Eliam uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
There's Uriah. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. When she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to the house, down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, um, why, have you not come, why have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, that's tents, and my lord Joab, the servants of my lord, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab um, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, uh, set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people. Uh, servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Please pray with me <laughs> as we tackle what is a tricky passage, um, what is a heavy passage, what is a dense passage. But please pray with me um, as, as we open God's word together. Lord, we do believe that your word um, is profitable for teaching, correction, for um, encouragement. And so, Lord, we just pray, God, that your word uh, would, uh, would pierce us to the heart, Lord. It would uh, split uh, bone from marrow. Lord, that we would, uh, Lord, fix our eyes on you. And that, Holy Spirit, you would help us to deal with some of these big, big themes, uh, big topics um, to do with salvation, to do with uh, repentance, to do with forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought. And, Holy Spirit, would you just come and do what only you can do? Would you bring about growth, maturity, and conviction? Lord, that we might surrender more to you and grow in love and affection um, and adoration of who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so we see this guy, Uriah, uh, who is one of David's mighty men. Um, When David was in his lowest point, when David was hiding in a cave, when David had nothing, when David was on his own, Uriah was one of those guys that came to him and stood with him. Uriah was one of those guys that stood next to him and said, David, I'm with you. I'm in this with you. I'm standing with you. I want to serve alongside you. I want to submit to your leadership. I recognize God's anointing on you. I want to stand with you. 
And yet here we see David commit adultery with his wife, manipulate Uriah back so that he can try and orchestrate things so that they might think it's just actually Uriah's the dad, um, but he doesn't. And then eventually David's like, well, I've got no other choice. Joab, put him at the front of the fighting and we'll have him die. And we'll, we'll kill him off. This is a guy that's given, given his heart and soul to David. And David's committed adultery, manipulated and deceived him, and killed him. We read at the end of this chapter um, in 2 Samuel um, that the baby uh, was then born. Um, and so, this, so David, if you like, is living with this sin for several months. He's living with this thing. Um, just weighing on his heart um, for months. He knows what he's done. And then we jump over the page into, into 2 Samuel 12. And we're going to pick up the story from verse 1. And we're just going to read through to verse 15. And the Lord sent to Nathan. Now Nathan was a prophet at the time um, in Israel. Um, and the Lord, sent to Nathan, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the rich one and the other poor. Uh, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed... You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. After this, we see um, the the child falls sick. 
uh, and David is, is laboring in prayer. He's, he's weeping, he's, he's on his face before God, uh, pleading for the life of this child. Um, and eventually, uh, the child dies. And Nathan, the prophet, uh, comes to David. It's a pretty bold statement, to be fair. To stand before the king and, 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 and not just give him, if you like, an illustration of what he's done. Because David still doesn't get it in verse, six, uh, in verse uh, 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And then verse 7, Nathan's like, no, 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 David, you're the man. You're the rich man. You've taken, you've taken what little Uriah had and, 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 and you've taken it for your own. God's given you Israel. God's given you the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. He's made you king. He's anointed you to be king. He's given you palaces. He's given you everything you could want. And he even says he would give much more if it wasn't enough. And yet you've done this wicked thing. You've utterly scorned the Lord. And David's heart is broken. David's heart is absolutely distraught. And out of this place of utter desperation, confronted with his sin, and completely repentant, um, we jump into our psalm today. We jump into Psalm 51. Um, Many of you may well know it. Um, And we're going to look at the psalm in three parts uh, today. We're going to look at um, verses 1 to 6, essentially David's confession. Um, We're going to look at um, verses 7 to 12, um, where, where, where David pleads for God's salvation. He pleads for God's cleansing. He pleads um, for God's uh, renewal of his heart, for transformation um, in his heart. He knows he's done wrong. He knows his sin. He's confronted with it. And then finally, we're going to look at verses 13 to 19, at what David would do um, as a result. It's a psalm of repentance. Um, When we talk about repentance, repentance literally means to turn away from something and to turn towards something else. And so it's a psalm of repentance, of David turning away from this sin, of of being confronted with just the the ugliness, the brutal, brutal human nature, um, from him turning away from that and turning back to the Lord. Which is why I say this, the title of the sermon is Returning to the Foundation. Because in his act of repentance, he's turning away from sin. And he's beginning to put his faith and trust in the Lord once again. Um, We'll jump in um, at verses 1 through to 6. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We see uh, in the first three verses, 
David mentions the word I, me, my ten times. Ten times in the first three verses. Um, all of this to illustrate the, 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 the amount, the level of ownership that he takes uh, for his own sin, for his own wrongdoing. Um, we see throughout the psalm um, that, that, that he's, he's just confronted with his sin and he's got no excuse. He doesn't try and palm it off. He doesn't try and kind of uh, sidestep the issue. He doesn't try and dodge the issue. No, he's absolutely confronted with his sin um, and he's completely repentant. He takes full ownership um, of his sin. And I think often for us as believers... Um, Because we have to understand that um, by putting our trust in Jesus um, and leaning fully on him and standing on that firm foundation, um, he has uh, purified us. He has washed us whiter than snow. These are all absolute truths. And yet in 1 John um, chapter 1, um, we read that uh, John says... um, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Maybe our sin is, doesn't, we don't compare it in quite the same way that David, David's sin was. I mean, we would look at a sin like David and say there are severe consequences to a sin like that. But all of us struggle um, with sin. Um, Paul in Romans talks about the war of the flesh. But wrestling against um, the desires that we have, looking to overcome them. Um, and actually, it's a very real battle. The question really is, what do we do when we sin? What do we do when we step off that foundation? How quick are we to step back in to right relationship with the Lord? The first step, once we step off that foundation, the, one, the first thing we do when we sin is to just confess to just confess before the Lord and just say, do you know what, Lord, I, I, I acknowledge my sinfulness before you. That act, that word, that uh, deed, that thing that I did, Lord, I, take, I, I recognize, Lord, that is my responsibility. I own that. I own that sin just like David did. It says in Romans 3 that the, that the heart of man is wicked, that, that no one is righteous, not even one. That we've all turned, turned away. We've all turned to our own desires. The problem is, as, as, as a church, we don't always like to talk about sin. <laughs> we don't like to talk about the fact that actually we do make mistakes. That actually we do say an angry word. Because we want to turn up to church and put on a happy face and be smiling and be happy. And, and, and acknowledge the, the, the grace and the glory that we found in Jesus. Absolutely. But I think what we mustn't forget is the journey that it took us to get there. And like, like David, it's a journey. We'll see, we'll see towards the end of the psalm um, that he comes through to a spacious place. He comes through to a place of salvation, to a place of cleansing, to a place of standing before God perfect, clinging to the promises of God. Absolutely. But first of all, he has to walk this process. And I think all too quick... We, 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 we try and just deflect or, or, or excuse sin or ignore it rather than actually confront it, own it and bring it to the cross and say, Jesus, put my confidence in you. 
in uh, verses 7 to 12, it moves on to um, his desperate cry for salvation. His desperate cry for God to come and restore him. Um, He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's so absolutely crushed that he says in verse 9, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's a broken man. This sin that, that, that he's been living with and carrying for months is not just something, it's not just, it's not just affecting his mind, he's physically the bones that you've broken Restore them. Heal me. Let the bones that are broken rejoice. He's crying out for salvation. This, this, this plead in verse 10, creating me a clean heart. We read in Ezekiel um, 36 uh, and verse 26. Uh, let me just jump there quickly. Um, I forgot the bookmark. I apologize. In verse 30, in chapter 36, verse 26, he says, um, um, And I will give you a new heart. This is talking about what God will do through salvation. What he will do through Jesus. What he will do to his people. What he will do to those that come, repent of their sin, and put their full confidence and trust and wait in him. He says in verse 26, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart, uh, from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. What a promise. You see David knows his own despair. David knows that he's got nothing in the bank. He hasn't got an excuse. He's got no reason or justification to think that he could do any better the next time. That he would have made any other decision. Um, except God says... I know, but I'm going to remove your heart of stone, that heart that is cold, that heart that is turned against me, that hardness. I'm going to remove that heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that is soft to my Holy Spirit, that is open to my leading. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that that feels the weight of conviction and can receive the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change. You see, David knows he hasn't got another option. And, and, and how many times when we, when we do, we, 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 we say a careless word and we think, oh, I won't do that again. It's really not about whether you're going to do it again or not. The issue is, will you trust that God has given you a new heart And that the Holy Spirit equips you with the power to overcome sin. So that not just you you won't do it again. But actually you find victory over doing it. That actually means you don't even have to think about not doing it again. Because God's given you power to overcome in that instance. You see, when you put your trust in Jesus, it's really not about trying to do better. It's really not about can 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 you pray 
five times this week? Can you, um, you know, are you, are you generous with all of your friends? Um, are you always kind? Are you always this? Are you always that? Are you? Because if you do, it's never going to happen. It only comes by a heart of transformation. It only comes about by that removal of a hard heart being replaced with a heart of flesh. And I think so often as Christians, what started out with a transformation of the heart, um, there are instances that we face, things that we say, things that we do, that they might not be, uh, uh, we might not put them in the same category as adultery and murder, um, but every time there's a hardening of heart. There's a warning in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, um, and it repeats the phrase three times. It says, Today, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart to the conviction of God. Don't turn away. Have soft hearts. Have hearts of flesh that will receive his conviction and will receive power to transform and change. There's three words um, in, in this, in this uh, psalm um, that are used, if you like, for our, to, to articulate that rebellion against God. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. Essentially, they all fall under the same category of rebellion against God. But they all hit something slightly different. Sin, if you like, is about, is, is about aiming for a target and missing it. If you've aimed for something and you've missed it, you've sinned. And, and, and God's given us his law. Um, and the Israelites would have known what they were aiming for was the law. That's what they were going for. And time and time again, as we see in David's life, they miss it. And they sin. Iniquity is about immorality. An immorality that goes against the laws of God, an immorality that actually is devious and, and wants to uh, turn away to our own desires. An immorality that walks away um, from God's statutes. And then transgression. Transgression is to literally overstep a mark. So where God has put, in bound, put parameters and boundaries for us to live by, and we overstep the mark. And we transgress. We find ourselves not on that firm foundation, but we find ourselves somewhere else. And actually, the call for us is to overcome, to come back and return to that firm foundation. The Bible's really clear that whether we call it sin, whether we call it iniquity, whether we call it transgression, there is very little we can do. In fact, there's nothing we can do to overcome those things. But the wonderful thing about the gospel is that Jesus, who was perfectly sinless, who never missed the mark, Jesus, who never turned to his own idea, who never um, had turned to pride or arrogance, Jesus, who never stepped beyond the parameters of what God had said, Jesus was perfect. And, and, and the New Testament is clear that he, he came into the world to live a perfect life. That where through that sin, through that rebellion against God, we deserve death. That actually Jesus came and lived that perfect life that we never could. 
that he died on the cross, that we could put our trust and confidence in him. And this transaction can take place whereby Jesus gives his perfect life for us in exchange for our sin and our debt. And it's all about us finding a proximity with God. It's all about him bringing us back into right relationship with him. And we see that um, in the last uh, few verses of our psalm. So we'll jump in um, at verses 13. Then I will teach, my, uh, then I will teach uh, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Maybe David has spent months sacrificing animals to try and atone and appease for his sin. And David's, David's answer is, uh, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. I've tried it. It's empty. It's futile. It leads to nothing. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David there saying in his humility and his brokenness, he comes back to the Lord and he says, God, only you can do it. It's not about the heart of sacrifices. It's about my heart. God, it's about you transforming my heart. And through this cry of David, what we see uh, in the rest of David's life is this beautiful, um, the beautiful forgiveness of God. That actually there is such a promise in God that those sacrifices that were meant to maintain that relationship between God, those sacrifices that were meant to keep us in close proximity with the Lord that actually Jesus was that sacrifice that actually Jesus was the one that made a way that we could come and be in right relationship with God that we could find proximity closeness nearness that we could draw near to him in our hearts that now with that heart of flesh we are soft to his leading we're open to the work of his Holy Spirit that we just say God we we want to give it all to you We want to lay our hearts bare before you, King Jesus. In 1 John, in 1 John 1, I read it a a minute ago. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. I'm going to read that again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That heart has been transformed. That is such good news. I think perhaps as a church, I think particularly in our part of the world, we don't like to own up to mistakes. We don't like to take responsibilities. I'm not sure anybody really does, to be honest, whether this part of the world or not. You don't like to own up to our mistakes or our problems. But the promise is that actually if we confess, then God will come and cleanse and purify and wash us. The question is, will we, will we confess before him? Will we have that heart of repentance? Will we have a heart that's soft to him and just says, Lord, what, what, what are you pointing out in me? What is it you're challenging in me? What is it in my heart that is growing hard? What is it, God, that you want to deal with and that you want to transform and change? You see, the incredible thing is we aren't left to do this by ourselves. In John 16, Jesus said, um, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper is talking about the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, when we think about repentance, when we think about confession, we think of it like standing on one cliff and we need to get to the other cliff. And actually, the illustration that's often used is Jesus stands in that divide. And that's absolutely true. And I don't want to take away from the fact that actually, by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are declared righteous. A thief on the cross says, surely you're the Lord. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. A simple word of confession, yes, from one cliff to the, to the next. But actually, what Jesus seems to be saying here is actually there's, there's, there's a bit more of a process. Repentance in our daily lives is more like a journey. Yes, we want to get from one cliff to the other cliff. But it's like you have to go through the valley to get there. You have to go through a jungle, across rivers to get to the other side. And we can't do that. There's nothing we can do to get from one side to the other. And yet Jesus says, the helper, uh, if I go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is a helper. In the same chapter, he's described as a counsel, as a friend, as, as somebody that draws alongside and leads us. So you're absolutely right. We've got no hope to get from that cliff to that cliff. Except the Holy Spirit comes to us in our sin and he walks that journey with us. He guides us through the jungle. He guides us across rivers. He guides us through all the traps and snares so that actually we can come into fruitfulness so that we can stand on the other cliff 
we can worship and glorify Jesus with our full bodies, knowing that we've been washed, knowing that we've been cleansed because we've been on that journey with the Holy Spirit. He's convicted of sin. He's convicted us of righteousness. And he's convicted us of judgment. And we've been brought into this spacious place. And when we first put our trust in Jesus, yes, it felt like that was from zero to 100 miles an hour. But actually, as believers, how quick are we to move from that to actually this is a journey of sanctification, the Bible calls it, of trusting Jesus. That as we walk with the Holy Spirit, he will point things out. He'll pinpoint things in our lives. Say, what about that? I thought we were over that. And he'll bring these things to mind. And each of those is like another step on the journey. Trusting him, trusting him, trusting him. You see, it only comes by putting our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's how we, we, that's how we receive this new heart. That's how we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that equips us um, to overcome sin. It says in uh, Romans 6, and we'll end with this. It says in Romans 6, If you've been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection likeness, his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. You see, we've been raised to new life. By coming before the Lord with honesty and humility, with softness of heart, and just saying, God, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my all. Lord, I recognize my own sin. Lord, would you remove that heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh? As we come to him, he cleanses us. He purifies us. He causes us to walk in new life with him. You see, if we die to our old self, then we will be resurrected into newness of life with him. That actually we can be sensitive and open to the Spirit's leading and say, Lord, what would, you, what, would you, what would you challenge me about? What would you speak to me about? God, I want to honor you with all that I am. Why don't we stand to our feet? I recognize the subject of this sermon is heavy, it's weighty, it's difficult, it's often hard to wrap your head around. But I just feel really, really, I really feel God wants to just in this moment, um, just even just be speaking to people across the room. If you're not a believer here or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then the first step is actually to to recognize your own sin. To recognize how much you've missed that mark. How much or how readily you are to turn to your own ways. To turn to your own way of doing things. And actually to come in repentance and put your trust fully in the Lord. And trust in Jesus' death on the cross to set you free.
And if you are a believer here, perhaps you feel like you're limping. Perhaps as Dave brought that word, it has, maybe you've been living with something for months. It's only as we come and confess those things to the Lord that he bring about, brings about transformation, renewal, healing, and freedom. You don't have to... No one's going to lean on you to share details you don't want to. But do you know what? God knows. God sees your heart. I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to just come and where appropriate to bring conviction, where appropriate to bring correction. Holy Spirit, we do thank you that we're not left as orphans. Holy Spirit, you come to us to equip us, to give us uh, restoration of heart. Lord, to overcome sin by your power at work in us. Lord, to know freedom from sin, to know freedom from things that have held us back or have us wound up. Lord, even to the point of of, of causing physical sickness, like David, my bones are broken. Holy Spirit, I just pray right across the room, Lord, you would be just pinpointing things in our heart, that Lord, we would grow greater in our love for you, greater in our affection. Lord, that our hearts would be poured out before you. And that, Jesus, we would lean fully and confidently on your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we say we haven't got another solution. Jesus, we haven't got another answer. And, Lord, we're sick of making excuses. We're sick of trying to resolve to do things better, do things differently, and nothing changes. Lord, would you come and transform our heart? Lord, would you give us hearts that are soft, hearts of flesh, Lord, that are open to your conviction? Lord, maybe even where some of those hearts have just grown hard, Lord, we pray, would you soften them up by the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, come and do what you, you, only you can do. Amen. We're going to uh, take bread and wine um, as we sing uh, this next song. It may be that you, it may be that you uh, just don't feel in a place. Uh, to be able to partake of bread and wine. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should take bread and wine in a worthy manner, in a way that honours the Lord. And if you're living with something or God's just pinpointed something in your heart, 
It may be that you just need to surrender that to the cross and just say, Lord, I'm giving you my all. I'm creating space for you to just come and fill my heart. And it may just be appropriate for you to just sit the communion out. It may be that there's certain things that you can't resolve in this moment. And I would just encourage you, until that is resolved, let perhaps just sit communion out. For the rest of us, um, it may be that God's just highlighted something and you need to share it with the brother or sisters so that they can stand with you and pray with you. We love to take bread and wine in community together. We love to take it with one another. So as we sing in just a moment, we're going to do that. If you're, not, if you're a visitor and you're not a believer, then please feel free to sit this out. Um, there's nothing... Uh, there's nothing magical about the bread and wine. Um, this is an act of remembrance. And as we take this in faith, we believe that we remember and we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. That actually through that proclamation, we find life. We find life in him, newness of life. And so we're going to take bread and wine together. Let me pray before we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for this time together Lord we recognise I recognise Lord that Lord some of these themes are big and Lord they are often hard to grapple with Um, and Lord we just pray for your grace to be evident right across the room Lord I pray whatever is of me Lord would just be taken away Lord whatever is of you Lord would it take root in our hearts Lord we Lord we want to even if painful sometimes, Lord, we want to journey towards uh, maturity and faith in you in an ever-growing, ever-loving way. In Jesus' name, amen.